Hello, it's Elizabeth Emery, host of Hear Her Sports. Before we get started, I'd like to say how much I love pockets. Women need pockets, including women runners. Whether we're out for a short or a long run or out in our regular life, we need pockets. That's exactly why Wazelle designed the pocket jogger tights. They have seven pockets total, including a rear zip pocket, two large side pockets, and mesh pockets at the waist. You can easily store everything you'll need on any run. I love the pocket joggers in all the links, full-length tights, three-quarters, knickers, and the shorts. They're all just perfect for carrying my house key and for stashing a headband or hat when I get too hot, because I always get too hot on runs. Plus, they are super comfortable and made of really nice, soft, compressive, and moisture-wicking fabric. Wazelle's pocket joggers are long-lasting and fit great like all the Wazelle products, so you can head out confidently on your runs or whenever you go out. Find the pocket jogger tights at wazelle.com. That's O-I-S-E-L-L-E.com. Or click the banner link at the top of the Hear Her Sports website at hearhersports.com. You are listening to Hear Her Sports, a podcast for active, adventurous women who love hearing stories from other active, adventurous women. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in sport through a conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. This week, my guest is the extraordinary rock climber, Sasha DeJulian. Sasha is also the founder of Send Bars. I've long believed in the importance of nutrition for performance, certainly, but also for general health and longevity. I can tell, for example, when I'm not eating enough vegetables or enough variety of vegetables. As I mentioned to Sasha in the episode, this is something I need to pay attention to during the Cleveland winters when fresh local vegetables are unavailable. So an episode covering topics of food and nutrition seems like a great way to end the year. Yes, this is the last episode of the year. I'm hoping this is also a great way to start the winter off with good intentions. Please let me know how you manage vegetable eating in the winter. I could use the help. Send ideas to Elizabeth at hearhersports.com. But that's not all. In addition to running send bars, Sasha is also still actively climbing. In the episode, she talks about her training, her totally sweet gym setup in her garage, increasing power, and upcoming projects including an enviable climb with the legendary Lynn Hill. I have climbed a bit myself and definitely gained a lot from the experience, but it's not really my thing. However, what I do love about the sport is that all body types can be successful. Sasha's explanation of the how and why of that is beautiful. She also talks about her ambitions for women-only endeavors and being a feminist. Before bringing on a guest to talk about a product, I do consider it carefully. And I'm delighted to share this episode with Sasha because she was absolutely outstanding to talk to. And I am intrigued by the reasons she made Send Bars and what they offer. It's, of course, a lovely secondary benefit that a team of four women run the company and the bars really do taste great. The performance bars remind me a little bit of fruitcake, but perhaps I'm being influenced by the season. You can try them too. Sasha and her team are offering a discount code for listeners to order Send Bars. It's SendFam for 20% off. You can go to her show notes page at hearhersports.com to find those details. 
I hope you enjoy meeting Sasha as much as I did. So let's get to it. Sasha DeJulian began climbing in 1998 at six years old. She won the World Championships for female overall, a silver in the Bouldering World Championships, as well as a bronze in the duel. Sasha was also the undefeated Pan American champion for over a decade. Outdoors, Sasha is the first North American woman to climb the grade 9A 514D. Additionally, she has on-sighted multiple 8B pluses 514As, ascended groundbreaking multi-pitch routes of over 1,500 feet of 8C climbing, and accomplished multiple first ascents and over 30 first female ascents around the world. Sasha is a graduate of Columbia University in New York City, where she studied nonfiction writing and business. She is on the board of the Women's Sports Foundation and is an athlete ambassador for Right to Play, Up to Us Sports, Access Fund, and the American Alpine Club. She is the founder of Sandbars and Female Focused Adventures, plus she is the co-founder of Rome TV. Well, welcome, Sasha. It really is a pleasure to have you here. I love talking to climbers, so welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. Sure. You know, I know that you've told your story about how you started climbing, but I read that it was love at first sight. So I want to find out more about that. Like, what was it? I mean, you were so young. I was really young. I was six years old. So the best I can describe it is it was just something that I loved to do. My brother had a birthday party at a climbing gym and I was six. He was turning eight. He's 14 months older than me. And something clicked with me wanting to come back in the local birthday party employee told my mom, you know, your daughter's really good at this. She should join the local junior team. And at the time I was really involved in dabbling in a lot of different sports from like soccer to swim team, skiing, and most kind of involved was figure skating and ballet. So climbing was just like this hobby for me to start. Uh, I joined the junior team program, which I'm sure the birthday party employee told all the parents, like, your kid's great at this and they should come back. But anyways, I took the hook and I started going to the gym about twice a week. And there was just like different kids from the D.C. metro area, which is where I'm from originally. Fast forward about a year later, I walked into the gym when I was seven. There's a youth regional championships taking place. And that was kind of the way that I stumbled upon competition climbing and it was like a qualifier for youth nationals which I had no idea even existed the organizers let me compete in the 11 and under category and I happened to win my category that day and it was kind of like that was the beginning blocks of when I started looking more into what is climbing as a sport that sort of the climbing as a sport competition is so interesting in relation to, you know, like being outside and climbing big rocks. Totally. It's an absolutely different side of the sport, especially in today's day and age. There's been more of a divide between the two disciplines. Back in the day, climbing outside was the the majority way that people entered climbing was like in, in the actual background and roots of climbing. It's an outdoor sport. But this gym industry and commercialization is, I think, a large driver in the popularity of the modern day climbing, too. And now even climbing competitions are on the Olympic stage. So back in the day, this was like late 90s. 
climbing gyms were still were still kind of growing and a bit of a novelty today they're like super epic huge large spaces in most urban cities around the world but at the time like climbing gyms were pretty few and far between and honestly in like random warehouses that seemed like you were driving to the middle of nowhere and then you'd come across a climbing gym so I think that while climbing is still quite a bit of a niche sport in comparison to mainstream sports like football and soccer, it's gained so much popularity since when I started. It's certainly more convenient to go to a gym. It absolutely is. And it's also, honestly, in many ways, the safest way to enter the sport because you learn your foundational blocks of how to manage ropes and how to belay properly and and the fundamentals of movement in a climbing gym because it's so controlled. And then it's a great bridge to then enter the outdoor landscape. Now there's a lot of guiding companies, which, you know, if you want to go and climb outside for the first time, a lot of people may hire a rock guide and that'll be their entry. But if you've climbed in the gym, you also develop this network of people that you meet at the gym who may have gone climbing outside before. In my case, it was like this little network of kids that were on my junior team and my coach who brought me outdoor climbing at a young age. And that was kind of like the building blocks of me experiencing climbing in this other terrain, which is what I enjoy now. Not plastic, but actual like real rock. When was the first time that you got outside? Honestly, the first time that I went outside was probably when I was around like six or seven in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. My whole family is Canadian and my mom lives in Montreal. And I went out with my brother and my cousin and I remember like appreciating snack time probably more than I appreciated like the actual act of climbing because it was all just novelty. It was like these top ropes were set up and we were just climbing and kind of enjoying like being by the brook and a stream and swimming. And, and it was kind of like just like an outdoor activity. And then when I was around like eight and nine, I went with my team coach, this man named Claudio Vidulescu, who headed this like little elite climbing team program that I was a part of at Sport Rock Climbing Centers in Alexandria, Virginia. And we would go to like the New River Gorge or the Red River Gorge. And, and that was when I learned how to like belay and understand like the grade scale that is a part of rock climbing, like from five point four to 5.15 as you progress up that grade scale, then climbs get more and more technically difficult. So I, w- I was very green and new to everything. And at the time, I was still also very focused on indoor climbing and competition climbing, which happens on artificial surfaces. And so climbing outside was just kind of like the hobby side of what I participated in. Since you've been climbing for so long, like how are you staying you know, still so super interested in what you're doing and training and getting better and improving and all that stuff that makes a great athlete. Yeah, it's been a really fun journey to be a part of, honestly, because the under the hood work, so to speak, the cross training has come a long way as well as the sport's grown. More research and science has gone into how do you improve in rock climbing beyond just the sheer act of climbing. Like the background of our sport is really like the stone masters back in Yosemite at least on the American side of rock climbing. And that was like, you would live out of your van and eat granola bars and 
cans of tuna and go up walls and kind of figure it out. And, and then you would get better at rock climbing by rock climbing. Now with the whole gym industry and more training and development within the actual like nuts and bolts of the sport, there's been how do you, you know, go to the gym and incorporate weights and cross training into your actual overall fitness as an athlete. And so that's really piqued my interest as a, dare I say, 30 year old who's been climbing for 24 years. My journey's been not without injury and not without, you know, ups and downs and a lot of like relearning the sport in many ways. So the improvement, it's, it's nonlinear. I mean, I improved from climbing from sports specific, like climbing a lot and, and exposing myself to new terrain. But then also I completely gutted and outfitted my garage into a training center, which has been really beneficial for me. And I go to the gym about, um, normally I'm training about five days a week, five to six. So what's in your garage? In my garage is, um, probably one of the most interesting aspects of it is this machine called a tread wall, which is like a treadmill, but it's a vertical climbing wall and you can change the angle of it and the speed at which the rotation goes. It's on a motorized machine. And I have about eight different root sets. They're color coded from, you know, five eleven to five thirteen plus five fourteen. And as you go, there's metrics that tracks your time and distance climb. So you can actually climb three thousand feet without leaving two feet above the ground. It's about twelve foot by twelve foot. And then I have two systems boards which are linked to LED Bluetooth apps. One's a moon board, which is a um, a structure that's essentially like a wooden climbing wall with holds that are again color coded, but there's lights that light up below it each hold. So there's like thousands and thousands of different boulders on it in this database that I can change on just on an app. And same with the other systems board that I have in the garage is a kilter board, which is a similar mechanism. And then I have like a, a campus and hangboard station, which is mainly meant for training your fingers, which is uh, as a climber, that's like your strongest attribute normally, which I always laugh at because it's it's not that, you know, sexy. And then I have like a, a weights and a pull-up bar and stuff like that. So it's pretty full encompassing for sports-specific training. And then in, in my basement, I turned it into my cardio and, and weights zone where I have a, a rower and a peloton and a um, tonal which has weights attached to it and kind of like a yoga zone and stuff like that. So COVID, um, I think like a lot of people, people kind of like turn their houses into gyms or at least a lot of athletes that I know did. So as a part of that trend. Are Are you focusing on anything in particular right now? Any weakness or strength that you're trying to increase or something like that? Yeah, right now I'm, I'm working on increasing my power Mm -hmm. as a climber. I have, a natural ability to have pretty good stamina and endurance. A lot of what I focus on these days is big walls. So you'll be on the wall for like 18 plus hours and really tap into that like type two, type three fun category of like just suffering and pushing your body. But it's, it's pretty static movement. Sometimes you're climbing through terrain where you just don't want to fall because a fall 
while you are not free soloing, the difference of free climbing and free soloing is free climbing. You have a rope and protection, but there can still be drop zones of like 40 feet where you run out and you could be seriously injured if you fell. So you're very controlled and static versus when you're pushing the sport grade and in zones of climbing, like there's a facet called bouldering, then you really want to be like explosive and powering off of your feet and off of your muscles and maintaining a lot of contact strength within like very, very like terrible grips that you're holding. As an athlete, I tend to be a bit more static and technical uh, in my climbing. And so I'm trying to become more dynamic. A part of that has been incorporating more cross training. So I just spent some time at Red Bull has a really incredibly innovative high performance center in Santa Monica. And I spent some time doing some like, you know, more traditional, like heavy leg presses and jump work with the trainers there and and focusing on how I can incorporate some cross training to benefit my overall power as an athlete. And they have coaches there? Or are you yeah. working yourself? Oh, that's cool. That's great. It's it's pretty crazy. Like I've never seen so many testing machines. The whole center has like from VO2 max to machines that can see your force that you have exerted on the ground as you jump to height. Like one machine I sat in, it's like a chair and you buckle in and it's consorted calf lifts, which made my hamstrings more sore than they've ever been. <laughs> Um, so a lot of the stuff that as an athlete, like in the climbing space, it's not part of my normal day to day. Red Bull does a really good job of like aligning you with sports psychologists, nutritionists, trainers who are really talented from different fields, from like the Olympic background to premier soccer league background, a lot of intelligence in that facility. Oh, that's great. Wow. So can we talk about height? Because I know that you're short. And I'm short too. Has that ever been an issue for you in climbing? You know, I think the vision of climbers are like super tall, lanky, so that they can just, you know, grab whatever they need to. I mean, do you have any thoughts about all that? Yeah. You know, everyone's vision of climbers is different. And I've been told my whole life, I don't look like a climber. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means because I have so many different experiences of what climbers look like take my mentor and absolute legend, Lynn Hill, who happens to be an inch shorter than me. I would, I would say that in climbing, you make whatever your body composition is work for you. And that's the really creative side of the sport. And again, reflected more in the outdoor space than in plastic on artificial surfaces. You have a root setter who is defining the path and it's almost forced in nature on rock. It is actually really unique because I could climb something as a five foot two woman very differently than a six foot tall man may climb it. And that may be utilizing different smaller intermediary little divots that I may find in the rock where I can leverage my body or get my feet much higher than a man who's six foot tall or woman who's six foot tall could do. And so I think that I've just learned to climb with what I have. And it's kind of like as a professional climber, as a climber in general, you generate your own sense of style. And that's like how you move your body on the wall and the rhythm that you generate. So I, th I think that that's a pretty unique side of the sport. 
I started thinking about this because I talked to a female root setter and she said that, you know, like women climbers really liked when she set roots because they weren't being forced to try to climb something that was set for a six foot guy. And the other thing she said was, you know, at the gyms where she set routes, you know, there were fewer women who were dropping out because she felt like a lot of women dropped out because they were trying to do these routes that were set for the six foot guy that they weren't. And so they thought that they stank at climbing when in fact it was just, you know, the, they were set up poorly. Yeah, I, I think that when people set climbs specifically making them challenging by making the holds more far apart, it's almost like a cop out. I don't think that that's the best route setting approach because there's a lot of really incredible world class route setters that know how to set for a myriad of different heights and make it equally as challenging. And when I go to a climbing gym and a climb is just only hard because you can't reach your feet or you can't reach the distance between the holds, it's almost like, well, this is only challenging for like the people who are short. I don't actually love that. And it does happen, honestly. Like there are some climbs that it's easier if you're short. And then there's some clients that are easier if you're tall. And that's just kind of like the nature of, um, especially on artificial surfaces, like it can be quite subjective. And I've experienced that in competitions back in my day when I did compete. And I do experience it in nature too. Like sometimes the rock formation is very, very sheer, all by the holds that are actually there by nature. And you can confront those same difficulties I find as like a shorter climber, sometimes if it's like a really steep angle, then if you're tall and you have these like long limbs that you need to hold in contact from your core all together and like stay tight on the wall, then it can be actually easier if you're short because your body is more like an accordion. So I think it's just really contingent on the actual climb. But another reason that for me as a shorter climber, part of my focus in this phase of season that I'm at is like, let's get under the hood and work on dynamic movement and becoming more powerful and maximize my ability to jump in between holds and reach higher than I'm used to being able to reach. Cause that is like a big issue that I often face is just my height making me need to think a little bit more outside of the box. That's so interesting. Thank you. Thanks for all that. Sasha and I are about to talk about Send Bars, the nutrition bars that she founded. She is offering listeners a 20% discount so you can try her bars. Use the code SENDFAM, S-E-N-D-F-A-M. If at the end of the episode you forget the details, you can always go to Sasha's show notes page at hearhersports.com to find everything you need and a link to the Send Bars website. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. 
And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-back training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. Well, now let's get back to Sasha, to Julian. Well, let's get to the Send Bars and their bars that you founded, adventure, sports bars. How would you describe them? Let's like start from the beginning. Yeah, I've always made my own nutrition bars since over the last 10 years. I've never wanted to eat what's on the market because frankly, what's on the market is full of crap, whether it's preservatives, chemicals, sugar, or just healthy and tastes terrible. And so even back when I was in college, I had this Blendtec, which is like a 3.3 horsepower engine blender that I would put nuts and dates and seeds and different freeze-dried vegetable and fruit powders into because when on the wall, it's really hard to actually get any sort of like fiber and, and viable nutrients like vegetables because you're not, you know, lugging up a head of lettuce up onto the portal edge for five days. And so my solution was, let me just like incorporate some vegetables into my bars. And then the longest time I would do that, I would make my own bars, roll them up into balls put them in tin foil and even ship them to my friends. And and that was kind of like my little thing. Flash forwards two years ago, I had massive hip reconstruction surgery, which kind of sidelined me out of climbing for nine months. And I was there and thinking, well, I finally have the calling to have this time for this thing that I'm really passionate about and have always wanted to start. And I actually trademarked the name Senbars in 2012, but I never had the time to actually pull the trigger and start a company that I started putting into the building box of like, this is what I want this company to represent and be. So one side of how I would describe Senbars is they're really healthy on the go nutrition that is whole food, organic, no preservatives, no additives, no chemicals. And it solves the question of being healthy, but also frankly, tasting really, really good. And then they also, each bar has a full serving of dark leafy greens, which is pretty incredible to have while on expeditions or even, you know, I have days where I'm super busy and running around like all of us do. And I don't have time to like stop and sit down and eat a salad. But if you eat a bar, you're like, well, this is great. I have a full serving of greens in it. And then lastly, they're also adaptogenic. So a big part of my nutrition journey, especially over this last course of huge recovery over five surgeries that I had was really learning about superfoods and adaptogens or medicinal mushrooms. So 
our perform bar, which is nutrient timing based on like why you eat, what you eat and when. Um, our lemon cherry perform bar has cordyceps and lion's mane, which are really incredible mushrooms that, you know, non-psilocybin mushrooms, they're fully science backed and legal within the nutrition space, but they're full of immune boosting, endurance boosting elements to these mushrooms that are in our bars. And there's a substantial amount of these adaptogens in each bar. And then our recover bar has ashwagandha and chaga and equally like really great at balancing your adrenals out, enhancing your recovery. Chaga is like the single most high concentrated food for antioxidants to any food on the planet. So that's been a really cool journey for me. I linked with this woman, Ariane Jones, who I met as a part of this international women's forum, which brought together former and current professional female athletes and helped make this transition of matching us with mentors to enter the business space. And she was a part of this program too. And we met in Miami um, about five years ago and instantly connected, but she had been an Olympic athlete for team Canada turned nutritionist and chef when she was diagnosed with Lyme disease. And so she's really the genius behind like generating the recipes and the formulas that I work with on making sure that the bars both taste really great and are really good for you. I think what fascinates me most is this inclusion of vegetables, because frankly, you know, like during the winter, I don't live in a place that grows great vegetables all year round. And I do notice a difference when I stop eating vegetables. So like, how did it occur to you to include those? Was it simply because you weren't getting them climbing? I mean, is it something that if I were a climber, that would have been really obvious? Maybe, maybe not, because I think that there's a lot of lack of nutrition knowledge in climbing. I come from what isn't uncommon, a really heavy background of disordered eating. And that is really rampant in climbing. And that's like not only related to our sport being a gravity sport where strength to weight ratio is a huge component, but it's about learning how to optimize your body and, and really feed it with the proper nutrients. And when I was a teenager, like 18 and really counting calories and very, very aware of everything that went into my body, at least I was aware enough to be incorporating vegetables, but I, I see climbers all the time. I know it's it's pretty relevant in other sports too, where you, you don't understand that not every calorie is equal and how important the role of greens play in our blood system and our overall health and like our body being able to actually process foods and, and flourish. So I think that there's a mix of both my own journey of learning more about nutrition and having the privilege to actually work with really qualified nutritionists through my career afterwards when I was like, you know, I need to approach my profession and my sport in a healthier manner so that I can be a high performing athlete for the long run and not what you so often see is like teenagers who break it onto the scene and aren't nourishing their body properly. And two years later, are completely disappeared from, you know, breaking records or high performing. And so that was something that I made a concerted effort around. But then also, 
I would say probably my my background in going on these bigger expeditions where you're living on the side of the cliff and don't actually have access to vegetables or or whole food that I was like, we need to have a solution here because when you're living on the side of a cliff for like my last expedition for a month, your body is not going to be very happy with you if you're just eating processed food. My body can really feel the difference when I am feeding it with whole foods versus foods packed with like preservatives and chemicals and kind of like that gut bomb that you feel when you eat something that just kind of sits in your stomach. I wanted my body to actually be digesting these nutrients and getting optimal performance out of them. Yeah, let's back up for a little bit because and explain how like you are on the mountain for a month at a time. And as you mentioned, you don't want to be lugging up the head of lettuce, but you also don't want to be lugging up, you know, like other kind of heavy foods. I mean, there's a lot of limitations in terms of what you can bring up. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like I look at the current energy bar market and for brands that have, um, you know, I don't know if I should name them, but so many bars, you look at the wrapper and you see brown rice syrup or corn syrup or whatever it is. Those are all forms of refined sugar and chemicals. And often like the first four ingredients listed, that's what the bar has the highest composition of. So when I've looked at energy bars in the past, I've been like, I'd rather make a loaf of banana bread and eat that because it's going to be a whole lot better than me or even eat a Snickers bar because I'm going to enjoy it more than, you know, some of these other bars. I think that the refined sugar aspect, when I was really injured and recovering from surgery, I cut out refined sugar. And that was because refined sugar is incredibly inflammatory for your body. And I wanted to do everything that I could to get my body back to normal. So now that it is normal and it's recovered from surgery, I'm like, well, I'd like to be optimal. So bringing it back to being on an expedition, it's again, like you have a small set of resources to what you can actually have with you because you're carrying everything in to wherever you're going to be sleeping on the mountain. Often it's like thousands of feet up on a cliff. So everything needs to be compact and nutrient dense for me to really feel optimal with the food that I bring. Another component that we did on my latest expedition was for dinner time, for instance, you're eating freeze dried meals. So again, combating, like we, we worked with a really great company that's probably the best in the freeze dried food space. It's this company called Lyo, which they own their whole production line and have a farm they're a Polish based company, two women actually who are sisters, which is a really cool story to me. Yeah. I love supporting other female founded companies, but the bars, honestly, with the amount of fiber that sun bars have helped kind of balance out our system of how much sodium intake we were having with even a freeze dried food company like Lyo that has really responsibly sourced and great ingredients. There's still a component of sodium that's going to be really high. So yeah, everything, I mean, what I love about planning for an expedition is it goes down to such a granular level of like everything that you're bringing onto the mountain, you've accounted for and you've laid out day by day for the whole entirety of the month. That's kind of like a big interest of mine is just knowing everything that you're bringing and trying to make it so that you can then when you're on the mountain, trying to achieve your biggest feat 
you're actually nourishing your body like you would while expecting it to perform. Well, that's a great segue because I wanted to ask about upcoming projects you have and, you know, like how you go about planning those expeditions. Yeah, it's uh, it's always different. A lot of my inspiration comes from other people in the community of my last expedition, Ryu, which was with Matilda Suderland and Brett Harrington. My interest had been piqued by two professional climbers, their Manos Poe, Iker and Ineco, who are from Spain, and they had developed this climb that no one had ever repeated. And they had posted about it on Instagram. And I was like, oh, wow, that looks incredible. Let's build an expedition there. And so the beginning blocks were really like learning more information, finding out from them, and then building my team of, um, I had decided like this would be awesome to do as an all-woman team, mitigating what risks are involved, what's our safety protocol going to be. And then figuring out like all of the gear, all of the food needed, the logistics of like, this is where base camp can be. This is where our advanced base camp will be kind of getting into the sticks as you get closer and closer to the expedition. So one of my climbs that I am pretty excited about for next year that probably be in March or April is this climb in Croatia that I'll be teaming up with Matilda again from uh, Sweden. It's one of the more challenging walls in the world. And, and we're going to go after that. I have a project in Yosemite that I'm pretty excited about starting to put some work into. And currently I'm working on this climb um, that would be a first ascent with Lynn Hill, who is, you know, I grew up with a poster of Lynn on my wall that says it goes boys. And she was the first woman, first human to ever free climb the nodes of El Capitan, which is one of the most epic accomplishments in the history of rock climbing. So she's always been this legend to me, but also she's happens to be my neighbor here in Boulder and she's become quite a good friend and also a mentor. So that's a current project that we're working on is this multi-pitch on this incredible feature in the Flatirons in Boulder, Colorado. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. We went up there three days ago and froze because it was 30 degrees and wind gusts of 60 plus miles per hour and we are hanging in 600 foot static line and what you do for developing a climb is essentially you're using like power tools because on a face where there's no technical gear like traditional gear that you can use to put into crevices of the rock where there are no crevices you put what's called a bolt so you use a, a power drill and you drill a hole and then you clean out the hole and then you have what's called a, a bolt and you hammer that into the wall and you secure the hanger and then you put a quick draw into that. So it's kind of like a lengthy carpentry-esque project, but a lot of the, the preceding work went into like us kind of learning about this cliff face and figuring out where could a potential line be. What's pretty incredible to me about first descent projects is like you take this big open canvas of rock and you think, how could you get up this? And no one's ever done it before. So like, is it possible? And it's this whole frame of not knowing and, and then like starting to whittle down every little aspect of this like 600 foot wall to find out, which is pretty incredible. Do you enjoy that collaborative process, working with other people to try to solve this problem, this huge problem? Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, like I, I feel so privileged to be able to work on this project with someone like Lynn, because I look up to her so much. 
But I, I think that climbing is an individual sport, but it's also a team sport because when you're on a wall, you're with your partner who you're literally putting your life into their hands when you leave the belay and they're blaying you or you're blaying them. So there's like an immense amount of trust that goes into it. And then also the collaborative aspect of like figuring out where exactly a climb could go, figuring out different sequences and body positioning and ways to actually like tackle that rock climb. It, it's pretty collaborative, which I enjoy a lot. Have you gotten good about picking who you go on expeditions with? I mean, <laughs> it could go terribly wrong. It can absolutely go terribly wrong. And I've had terrible experiences. Um, so yeah, I now am very specific about building teams. And actually, team building is a huge aspect that goes into an expedition because it can make or break the experience. And I think that success only happens when you're enjoying yourself and when everyone else is enjoying and and working candidly together. And that was actually a skill within the expedition space that I carried over into building my Sunbars team was figuring out who I could start this company with and knowing my blind spots and my weakness points and then bringing on team members. Which I eventually constructed a team of there's four of us total who are a part of the Sun founding team and really working together and understanding like that transparent honesty that needs to go into both a company, but also an expedition. Like if, if you're on a really large objective, then something that is really important going into it is set the intention and be very honest with like what success looks like to you and knowing what success looks like to your partners, knowing plan A and then risk mitigating. If this happens, what does plan B look like? What is a success to us? as a team, what's a failure as a, as a team and going into an expedition, you have to be very, very aware that things are going to always go sideways. And there's going to be things that you can't control and you may not even be able to predict. So you need to be nimble and flexible and communicative as a team to be able to discuss on the go. I mean, it's like a relationship too, but um, it all kind of ties together into transparency and and candidness and being okay with having really uncomfortable conversations. Are you good with uncertainty? You know, you talk about things going sideways. I mean, how how have you learned to sort of be good with uncertainty? Yeah, I think that's a complex question because uncertainty in my personal life, that can be challenging for me. I'm not one for like big surprises. <laughs> but I, I also have learned to live with uncertainty because even by nature of being a professional athlete, there's a lot of uncertainty that goes into that. And you're putting yourself out there and pushing yourself and you don't know when an injury is going to happen or, you know, a- anything could arise. So for me, the way that I deal with uncertainty is having backup plans and having some sort of scope of awareness of if this happens, then I can go to this solution-oriented response technique. A lot of uncertainty when I go into a big trip, like with Ryu or with future expeditions for next year, is understanding what risks may be on the table and 
how we're going to mitigate those risks because contrary to popular perhaps belief after films like Free Solo that obviously we're very mainstream is climbing probably 99.9% of climbers do not free solo. Like you fall all the time. If you fall, you're okay. You're on a rope, you pull back up, you work on those sequences. Like it's a major part of climbing is failure versus in free soloing. Like if you fall, you die. And that's the reason I don't do it. Like I, I am always thinking about worst case scenario and how to, how to mitigate that. So I would say that there's always going to be a level of uncertainty in climbing because it is inherently a dangerous sport. It's, it's exposed. It's in the elements, especially with climate change. Like there's a lot that is now affecting the integrity of our outdoor playgrounds, but I just try and have as many plans as I can have for backup. One of the things that's appealing to me of rock climbing is that aspect of, you know, being able to set out the problem and try and try and try until you get it. I think that that's sort of interesting. Yeah. It's uh, maybe one of my favorite parts of it is like that feeling when you actually realize that you can do something that on the initial try felt so incomprehensibly challenging and seemingly impossible. It's like, putting together this jigsaw puzzle that's both mind and body, which I think is really addictive. Yeah. You mentioned your SEND team of four founders, and they're all women. And you also, this recent climb in Spain was all women. And I gather some of your future climbs are all women. Talk about why you're choosing to do that and what the value of having all women teams are. Yeah, I think that I see it from two angles. I love climbing with men. I love climbing with women. I love climbing with partners who are supportive and not condescending or, or, you know, boastful to the point that they don't listen to me and my opinions, because I think that both parties or the entirety of the team needs to be heard. So that's a baseline. And I've had negative experiences within that space and also really positive. Going into Ryu, I knew I wanted to build an all-female team because I've done a lot of climbs with male climbing partners and had a lot of success in that space. But I've also experienced this um, assumption that when a man is present, there's almost like this attribution of that success being taken away from me and almost put onto that man being present and leading the way when that actually wasn't the case. And so a part of the journey for me is like, let me show you that you can't attribute this success to a man's presence. It's actually a full female team and we're entirely capable of achieving this task of achieving this climb that no woman's done before. And I I think that there's something really empowering there. I really like working with women who are really positive and supportive and bold in their own goals, because that inspires me. Like when I see a woman go and accomplish a really challenging rock climb that no woman has done before, I relate to that. Like, I'm like, wow, if she can do that, I can do that. And sometimes it's hard for me to relate to a man's accomplishment because we are physiologically different and climbing 
is a sport that is traditionally very male dominated. In today's landscape, I think more and more women are joining the sport. And also we see a lot of progress over the last 10 years of women's achievement within the sport. And that continues to grow. And I would say that within climbing, it is a unique sport because the delta between male achievement and female achievement is quite a bit smaller than in other sports, especially other like team sports that at least from my perspective. And then with regards to the Senbars team, it just kind of happened out that way. Like I was filling these spaces of what we needed as a company. And I had this great friend who went to Columbia University as well, who ran this boutique marketing agency out of Boston and had moved to Boulder in similar parallel to me, who felt like an amazing addition to the team. I knew this woman who is really incredibly accomplished within the startup food space from Boulder, who was a part of a lot of natural food brand startups that was a perfect fit. And then I knew my recipe developer who I never met a nutritionist more knowledgeable than her. So it kind of just happenstance that way that I chose the most qualified people and they just happened to be women. And we're not like trying to market only to women. We're trying to market to an audience of anyone who wants to reach their highest potential. And I I think that that for me kind of trickles into my climbing goals as well. It's like, I want my goals to be relevant, whether they're achieved by women or achieved by men. Like I I want the success to be gender neutrally impressive. So this is a question I have not asked before. So you can sort of help me, I don't know, formulate how this is going to go, because I want to ask it in the future. I mean, do you think of yourself as a feminist? And I know that there's some thoughts about that word, which is why I'm not exactly sure how to phrase it. But do you think yourself as a feminist and sort of when did that line of thinking start? Do you remember that? And, you know, you're also an advocate for women, not just in climbing, but obviously in starting this Send Bars company. Yeah, I would absolutely call myself a feminist. And I think that it's a term that's been polarized for no reason. And the reason I would say absolutely I'm a feminist is because I believe in equality. And I also see the differences of men and women. And I don't think that men and women are the same. I just think that men and women deserve equal opportunities, equal access to play, equal pay in play, equal pay in the workspace. That to me is being a feminist. And I think that Perhaps that term has been polarized because for different people, it may mean different things, which sometimes can be almost exclusive to women and and in a way exclude men, which I don't think is a healthy way to go about achieving equality, because I think that men who are feminists as well, who in my definition of that believe in equality for both men and women are such important players in that goal because men in all honesty sometimes can move the needle for feminism more than women can because unfortunately we live in a society where a white male's voice sometimes makes the loudest noise 
and can be taken seriously still more so than a woman or a minority group. And so I, I think that that has been really important, both from my career. I think that I first started to learn about the feminist movement when I was at the Potomac school where I went to high school. I remember I took this 10th grade class on women's studies and we learned about all of the incredible women that laid the, the foundational work and Gloria Steinem really spoke to me because she went about the feminist movement in this approach of including men in the conversation. And I remember takeaways from that class bleeding into me as a budding, you know, professional climber. I had my first sponsor at 12, but I started actually making a living for myself by around 17. And so that also led me to be on the board of the Women's Sports Foundation. And part of that experience has been being in the same board meetings as Billie Jean King, who's the founder and such a pivotal player in women's equality and sport and something that I've learned from our meetings and from being a part of such a incredible group that the Women's Sports Foundation has is like women and men working together. We have men on the board and even the men in my life, like my fiance, I would say is an incredibly staunch supporter of women's sports and women's access and hiring women. But I've also always been of the mentality of like hire the most qualified person for the position. And ideally that's someone of color. That's someone who is a woman. That's, you know, I I just want people to excel and to have those opportunities. I also think that those opportunities are like the bottom line is we need to provide opportunities for people who haven't had the opportunity before and empower them with that ability to see themselves in that space. Like even as a woman in climbing, when I was a little kid, like there weren't too many female climbers beyond like Lynn Hill and Beth Rodden and Katie Brown. That Those were some of the early people that I looked up to, but who I could look at and say, she's really at the cutting edge of the sport because so much of who I looked up to and who were leading the sport were men. I think representation and relatability is a really important thing as well. Yeah, for sure. I have nothing to add because that was fantastic. Oh, cool. Sasha, there's so much that you do and so much that you're involved in, in terms of like environment and advocacy and all this work that you do with the Women's Sports Foundation and other organizations. We're going to have to have you back on. I would love to come back on. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Thank you. That's it for the show today and for this year. So I will say have a happy new year and all the best to everyone for a stupendous, adventurous, happy, full of improvement 2023. Thank you to Sasha DeJulian for a beautiful conversation about rock climbing and her new nutrition bars. A special end of the year thank you to all of our Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee supporters. I really do appreciate your support and am grateful to all of you for listening and telling others about the show. Hear Her Sports is a listener-supported show and we couldn't do it without you. If you are not a supporter, enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to give back, go to patreon.com slash hear her 
or to the easy-to-use buymeacoffee.com slash hearher. For links to lots of climbing stuff, including details about the special discount code to order send bars that we're offering to all of our listeners, go to Sasha's show notes page at hearhersports.com. As always, I absolutely love getting notes, messages, and thoughts from listeners. Send me an email to elizabeth at hearhersports.com. Find us on all the socials at hearhersports. If social media is not your thing, definitely be sure to sign up for the newsletter. It comes out every other week and includes some of my thoughts about the most recent episode, often how I see it connecting to the rest of the episodes and to ongoing issues in women's sports. Until next time and next year, bye-bye. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.